All right. We did take a break last week since it was Easter, appropriate. We looked at a passage on the resurrection, but we've been going through the book of Galatians. If you have your Bible, you can get it out. And we're going to be in chapter 3. Um, I'm going to read the passage here in a second. I titled the, the message today, The Cursed. And as we read through the verses, I want you to pay attention to the t- number of times he uses the word cursed. And what he is talking about in this is what we're going to drive at today. But... Um, We're in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, and Paul writes this. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, as I was preparing this, I I began to think about in our cultures today, we don't have a lot of experience with cursed, being cursed or issuing curses. I mean, when you hear the word curse, you're probably thinking, oh, it's swear words. But that's not what he's talking about. He is talking about somebody who, has, who is under a curse. And the, the one time I've come across this in my life, I was in college. I was playing uh, soccer for a Christian college. Our coach was from Jamaica. And he took our whole team. We traveled over to Jamaica, and we did ministry while we were there. We played games. We went into neighborhoods and played against kids. We played against some, some big club teams there. It was a really great trip. But I remember once when we were doing ministry, uh, there was a guy who came forward, and I remember my coach was interacting with him, and he was really troubled because he came in and he said basically something like this. He said, I, am, I have been cursed. He said, a local uh, witch doctor has cast a curse upon me. And he said, I won't even leave my house. I'm he was afraid to go to leave his house. He, he, he stayed at home as much as he could. I said, how do you know you're cursed? We said, every day when I open my door, there's an egg that he's placed right there at the foot of my door. And that's the physical sign that, uh, th- that he has placed this curse upon me. And I don't know the culture. I'm just telling you what I heard in all this. I don't know the specific why an egg. I don't know. But, but uh, this is what he was saying. And now this is the idea. Now just think about that, 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 that he's using this term cursed, right? And, and I want us to drive out what is he talking about? Because fundamentally, I was going to say that all of us are cursed, He's going to drive at that, but there's something that happens at the end where we, we can not have to experience that. Now, when that's cursed in culture of Jamaica, what does he mean spiritually? What does he mean here? Paul's using this word. What does he mean by the word curse? So the first point that I'm going to give you today, and it comes from verse 10, is the cursed. Let's talk about what does he mean by cursed. And um, what I put here uh, at the beginning is that Paul, Paul states there are only two kinds of people. And I've said this before. Sometimes I say it this way. There's only two kinds of people in the world. 
doesn't matter your culture, doesn't matter what country, what race, really fundamentally the only important thing is two kinds of people, saved and unsaved. That's what matters above everything else. And Paul says it right here, but he says it a little bit different way. He says it this way, for all who rely on works of the law. So every single person on the planet who relies on works of the law. Now, if I go backwards, there's another kind of person. We've already talked about that. That's people who rely on their faith. Okay, And he says that in, in verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. He said that in verse 9, verse 10. Then he switches. For all who rely on works. So you see these two kinds of people. Those who are of faith, they are blessed. Those who rely on works, they are cursed. Okay? And I'll give you the basic meaning of this. To be cursed is rejection by God. That's the first thing I'll give you. To be cursed is rejection by God. And we'll add a little more to that as we go through the message. But that out of the gates, it's a good way to think of it. It's rejection by God. Now, in the verse, he says, Those who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, what does he mean by this? He's adding that to the understanding of what it means to be cursed. So let's go a little further in understanding this. And the first thing that, I, that as I put this together in kind of three steps, we got to go back to Leviticus. We got to look at what he means by, by following the law. In Leviticus chapter 18, this is what you have. You have God. He comes to Moses. They're going to go into the promised land. They've gone through the desert, and they're, they're, it's about time to go into the land that's been promised to them. And God says, Moses, I want you to, to, to say this to my people. Do not bring with you the rules of the Egyptians. Don't bring the Egyptian rules and, 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 and try to follow them. And when you go into this promised land, there's people there, the Canaanites. Don't follow or uh, bring into your culture the rules of the Canaanites. So he's, he's telling them, don't follow these rules. Don't follow those rules. But he says to them, I want them to follow my statutes and my rules. He actually uses this word. So Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, you shall keep my statutes and my rules. And then he says, live by them. Okay? Now, you say, Pastor, what do you mean by rules? Well, basically, you could go Ten Commandments is the basic, but then there were a lot of other rules that were added in there. But he didn't want them to. Some of the rules that the Egyptians had were not, they, they led them away from God to worship other gods, for example. Same with the Canaanites. So he narrows that down. Not Egypt's rules, not Canaan's rules, my rules. And then secondly, he said, live by them. What happens if you don't live by them? Well, the loss of God for breaking the rules. The prophet Isaiah, I think, described this very well in Isaiah 59. He says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. I mean, the words there, he has hidden his face from you because of your sins. A separation, just go all the way back to the beginning in the garden. Adam walked in the garden. The Bible says God came down and there was a face-to-face -face fellowshipping of God with Adam. 
But when Adam sinned against God, he sent out of the garden. And then you begin to see the history of man unfolding where we are separated from God because of our sins. Now, so the context here for cursed is follow my rules. Don't follow other rules. Follow my rules. If you don't follow my rules, separation. You lose fellowship with God. And then number three, as I kind of unfold this, cursed if you don't keep them. Cursed. Now, I go to Deuteronomy 27 here, and you get a really good picture of this because the, the, the religious leaders there, they're unfolding all the curses that can come up. And if you read through that, in that chapter, it's like, if you do this, you are cursed. If you do this, you are cursed. If you do this, you are cursed. Over and over again, 12 times they lay out curses for different types of rule breaking that you could do. And the last one, which I, is the one I wanted to give you, was Deuteronomy 27, 26. It says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, amen. By the way, if you ever hear a pastor say that, they got it from the Bible, right? You ever been in a, in a, in a sermon and it's like, and all the people said? Amen. Yeah, see, you know that, right? You've experienced that. They, they did it there all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. And, it was, and this is the context where they did it, right? You break this rule, cursed. You break this rule, cursed. You break this rule, cursed. And everybody said? Amen. So you agreed to it. You agreed to it. If you break the rules, you agreed to the curse. And that, that's, that's right there in Leviticus uh, chapter 27. So let me just summarize this. I put this together, the ethical requirements then for keeping the law. Number one, the law demands practical obedience, meaning you've got to be doers. He says you have to live by these rules. It can't just be like, yeah, I believe in these in a, on a spiritual level. We, we, we're going to debate these. No, no, no. You have to actually live in a way that it reflects that you are abiding by the rules. The law also demands personal obedience. This isn't just a, a nation. It comes, breaks all the way down to the individuals. It says every single person must follow the rules. And then uh, the law demands perfect obedience. It covers all things that are written, all of the rules. And for the Jews, that was a lot. You know, we, we might be familiar with the Ten Commandments, but there were hundreds of other types of uh, laws and rules that they had to, to follow. Now, you even get to, in the New Testament, where it says if you break even one of them, you've broken the whole thing. But the law demands perfect obedience. And we kind of live in a culture where you might look at those Ten Commandments and go, well, you know what, I, I, you know, you sh thou shalt not murder. We're going to uphold that one. I, I believe in that. But some of the other ones, you know, I don't know about the, you know, this one here. Uh, and and he's, I want you to see, he says, no, all of you, you can't pick and choose. There's like, just if we just stick with those ten, you can't say, I'll take these nine, and this one I'm going to throw out. It's all of them. It demanded, the law demanded all of them. And then you go on, it also demands perpetual obedience, which means it's not like you can just have a period of testing and then, you know, like, like you go to, to a, um, a boot camp or a college and you go through it and then you get something that says, I passed and now I don't have to go through that again. No, no. Every day for the rest of your life, you have to keep the rules. There's not a period where you just, during this period, I'm going to follow them and now I don't have to worry about it. Nope. Your whole life, perpetual obedience to all of them. 
Okay? And by the way, if you don't, what happens? Cursed, right? Everybody said? There you go. You agreed to it. Okay? Especially Ron back there. Are you saying amen two or three times on those? But um, the effects of breaking the law? Uh, curse. Okay? We covered that, right? But just to... I wrote down a definition that one of the writers said, death and hell are the end of every sin, but not the end of every sinner. Because you're going to see through this, there's a way that God provides at the end. But the last one I put here is that the law still exists, even though Judaism is no more. Okay, now let's just think for a second. Let's just think for a second. Because I want to feel the weight of, of what the law was. Okay, just the Ten Commandments, we stick with them, right? So number one, no other gods. Have you ever broken that? Is there anything in your life that displaces God? Is there anything that has more adoration, more love, and more time than you would give to God? Because if there is, it's possible that you actually have another God. Another God is not just like a carved image that sits on a mantle that you want to say some prayers to. It is something that displaces God to where the adoration and love is higher than God, okay? Could be that you've broken that one, that you are even living in a way that breaks it. Number two, no images. Even though I just defined uh, God a little differently, but there still was images that they were susceptible to bringing into their house. And one of the problems that Israel had was they would intermarry with other cultures and then those cultures would bring their gods in and you could go into a Jewish home and there might be different idols, different little carved sculptures. And I've talked about this in the past, that one of the reasons God said no images, don't make any images of me is because no matter what image you make, it will be imperfect. There will be an aspect of it that is imperfect and since you can't make an image that's a perfect, don't make one. Because we begin to um, absorb that and think of God and attach the imperfection to who He is. So no, no images at all. Get rid of them. And honestly, we live in a culture, particularly here in Guam, that has a lot of images in its culture. A lot of carved and graven images. Now, the next one. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. We live in a cussing culture, I'll tell you that. You know, the only time you were supposed to use the Lord's name was if you were talking about Him, like I do in a sermon, I talk about God, or if you're talking to Him in worship and prayer and adoration. If you use the name Jesus Christ or God in, in any other context, the Bible defines that as taking the Lord's name in vain, okay? And people have a hard time understanding that. They might grow up in a culture where it's not like that. You know, I, I remember when I was the athletic director at a Christian school here in Guam, and we had a coach that, that we had brought on. He was new, and... Um, um, we were at, I went to watch him at a game and he's on the sideline and he yells out, Jesus, Christ, like that. And so later I said, I had to bring him in. I said, hey, we, you can't do that. You can't. And he was totally unaware of that. And he had a religious background, but I was like, look, you have to, you, could, you only use the name in these two ways. If you're talking um, to him or about him. And he goes, well, I was talking to him. I'm saying, Jesus, put it in the basket. I was like, no, no. I don't think the crowd understood it that way, you know. <laughs> but 
the Lord's name in vain. Maybe you have broken that in your lifetime. Keeping the Sabbath um, that you set aside one day for rest that you give to the Lord. You give back time. You give back uh, energy and worship to Him and rest on that day. You are supposed to keep that in your life. Honoring mom and dad. Um, no murder. Everybody's always on board with that one, it seems like. But no adultery. Now, murder and adultery, it's interesting because Jesus took that to another level, right? He said, look, even if you hate somebody in here and, and you're bitter and you can't forgive them, that is, to me, you're breaking that still, even though you didn't physically kill them. If you, even though you don't physically go lay with someone, if you think about them and you're lusting about them in your mind, you're committing adultery, you're breaking that commandment. So he took it to uh, another level because he was concerned here with the inside, not just the externals of what we do. Um, stealing, bearing false witness, you know, stealing. I was thinking about probably everybody in here stole something in their life. We've all stolen something, you know, even as small as it might be at some point in our life. Uh, false witness. Uh, do you talk about relatives, friends, neighbors in a way that, that uh, is negative, that is your, 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 creating an image of them that is not good, bearing false witness, no coveting a neighbor. And that, that is broad because that one is, is don't, don't look at a neighbor and say, I wish I, had, I wish I had the house that they have. I wish I had the car. I could drive the car they have. I wish I could take the vacations they have. I wish I had a wife like that guy. I mean, all of those, anything that you look at that you covet, that you would wish you could have that your neighbor has, these I mean, look at that list. That's heavy to go an entire life and to say you can't break any of those. See, that's part of the curse. The curse is the impossibility of it because of our fallen nature. And the thing about the, the rules that God has given us is they weren't, they weren't given to us so, as, as a means to try to get our way to God. They were given to us to show us how bad we are, and that we need to be saved. They were to point us to a Savior, to point us to Christ. So the curse of the law, it cannot deliver, and its function ultimately was to condemn us. Now, that's the cursed rejection by God because we break His rules. Now, let's talk about the righteous. Okay, so let me read you again verses 11 to 12. It says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So, you know, the first point is you, if you're going to try to live by the law, you got to keep all of it, okay? And then the second point, the, one of the first things that he he talks about here is the principle of mutual exclusivity. And what I mean by that is there's two ways, and you can't mix them. They're exclusive. You don't mix them. You either live by faith, walk by faith, you rely on faith, or you, I'm going to follow the rules and I'm going to try to make it that way, because this is exactly what he says with the words that he's using. He says, again, it's evident no one is justified before God by the law. In other words, don't try to make yourself, you can't use the law, you, you can't. 
But then he goes on to say, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you're going to try, you've got to keep all of it. You've got to keep all of it in all the ways that I already described to you. Perpetually, don't break one, all the way. And so I, I, I make this point, and the reason I make this point is you've got to see this. Live by faith, live by works in the law. And, and most of you in here go, Pastor, we live by faith. We put our faith in Christ at this age. I was baptized. But the reality is you live with a mix. You live by faith, but in a lot of ways, you're also living by works. And he's going to show this to us as he goes through this because there are ways in which you are trying to balance your life out, you know, in between Sundays. You know, I, 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 I broke God's rules. I got to make, I got to bring something into my life to help balance that out so that I'm right before God. Even in this culture that we live, you can be told, how, what was your sin? Okay, say this many prayers. It's like balances it out. Okay, when you die in this culture in Guam, they have um, rosaries. They have things that bring into balance to make up for bad things that you did. There are aspects where we say, I live by faith, but there are things I've built into my life that are really works. They bring works into it to try to help. I've had people say to me, you know, I'm doing these things. Why are you doing them? Well, it's kind of like frequent flyer mileage. I'm hoping to build up, you know, a lot of good there. It's like, what well, doesn't matter? All our righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags. You must rely 100% on one work, and it was the work of Christ on the cross and then what he did applies to you. Now, sometimes we, we mix it, right? This is why back earlier in chapter 3, he said, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So even then, all the way back when he wrote this, they were mixing it. He said, you started with faith. Now you're trying to perfect it with the flesh. You're trying to live in a way that makes you feel clean before God by keeping his rules. So even then, so it's not a surprise, like all, all through history, the church has been, been guilty of mixing these two ways. So the other point I get out of these two verses is the precedent that Habakkuk sets for us. Now I say Habakkuk because it's, he is the prophet that's being quoted here, um, and Paul goes all the way back to show us something in the Old Testament. Now the illustration I wanted to give for this, so I'm using the word precedent, I'm on the next point. The precedent, which is something has happened before that now we use to live by here. And the illustration I thought of was in courts of law today. Sometimes you hear about a case and they're, try, they're trying to, here's all the details of the case and how will they rule? Well, sometimes what a lawyer will do is they will go back in time to see if there was a similar case with the similar details. And what did the judge rule? And they take the ruling and they bring it forward. It says, according to history on this, this is the, the definition of the law on this issue. And they bring it forward. And that's what's going to happen with Habakkuk. He's going to say something that Paul's going to go grab and say, even in the Old Testament, it was true. And it comes forward and, and speaks into, into the now. Now, the, the legal term, I, I'm not a lawyer. I had to, I had to look this up because I, I knew about it, but I had to look up the term. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Stare decisis. Is, is there any lawyers in here? Yeah, I probably butchered that. But here's what it means. A precedent that refers to a court decision 
that is considered as authority for deciding subsequent cases involving similar facts. And here's what Habakkuk said. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. But the righteous shall live by faith. Wait a minute. Old Testament, it's all about the rules. I just covered all that, the rules. Here's all my rules. Follow my rules. Don't follow their rules. Don't follow the rules. Follow my rules. By the way, if you don't, you're cursed. You're cursed, you're cursed, you're cursed, you're cursed, you're cursed. Right? It's all about the rules. And then we have these little moments where, no, no, no. The righteous will live by faith. Now, John MacArthur on this point, he says, the prophet makes life dependent upon faith by substituting faith for obedience He virtually supersedes existing law and establishes a new criterion which takes into account the state of the heart instead of the outward life. In other words, what is in here? This is what really matters. What kind of faith is in here? Your position before God is determined by the faith that is in here that makes you justified, not keeping rules. It's possible that somebody can, on the outside, look like we keep all the rules. We're very moral, but inside, they don't have faith in Christ and what He did. Actually, their faith is in their ability to be moral, and it makes them feel good. It makes them feel clean. It makes them feel righteous. It can make them feel higher than other people. Well, look at you. You you break rules. I don't break those rules. And then it makes them feel superior. And there's a false sense of security, a false sense of, of salvation there. It doesn't matter exterior when it comes on this subject that he's talking about. What matters is whose work are you ultimately going to rely on? And the answer should be the work of Christ on the cross and what he did. Paul says it in Romans 1. Verse 17, he also quotes Habakkuk, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we have the cursed. We're all cursed. We've broken some parts of those rules, right? But then he's talking about the righteous. And the righteous, well, they're going to live by faith, right? And now we're going to get to the last point, which I titled the substitute. Now, you know what a substitute is, right? Like, I coach soccer. I talk about that. Right now, I'm coaching girls' high school soccer for Harvest Christian Academy. We had a training match on Friday, and the training match was the, the way that it, the competitiveness and the level of the game, all the girls really wanted to play in that. And it's like I put the girls out there. They're playing in the game. The girls on the bench, they want to go in the game. The girls on the pitch don't want to come out of the game. They want to play. But I, I took a girl. I want some, someone else to play. You're coming out of the game. Sub! That's what you say. You yell it out. Sub! So the ref knows. Psh, blows the whistle. This one on the bench. You're going in for that person. This one's coming out. There's a substitution being made. Number nine for number five. And now, now, five is in the game. That was, maybe that was a little too much work. We all know what a substitute is, right? Okay. But here's one of my points, you know. It's a one-for-one. One. But Jesus' substitution is not. Jesus' substitution is a one for the many. It's one for all of us in this room. I mean, that would be a weird substitution. Sub! Number nine's coming out. Number five, six, ten, ten, twenty-two, ninety-nine. They're all going in. What? You know, it doesn't work like that in sports. But on the cross, it did. Now, let me read to you verses 13 to 14. 
Okay, and then we'll break it down a little bit. <clears throat> Verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So we have the substitute here. It says Christ redeemed us. So there's that. But then it says from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that's interesting. Well, let's look at these. The first point here is how is Christ a ransom? Now, some of your translations might, might say redeemed or redemption. Now, ransom is a word that describes like somebody's taking you captive, like a kidnapping, right? And you say, well, how do we get him back? Is there a ransom? I've got you held as a captive. If you give me the million dollars, I'll release the captive that I have. That's, a, that's the idea of ransom. And it fits because the Bible says we're held captive by sin. Sin and death have power over us. But Christ becomes the ransom. And this is where the word redeemed comes in because the word redeemed is a purchasing word. It came out of the slave markets. Like we, we could say the captivity is that we're slaves to sin, but the redeeming part is that he came and paid the price. What is the price to, to get out of this slavery? And the answer is the bloodshed of the Son of God. He redeemed us in that way. And that word means he bought us and he bought us with his sacrifice on the cross. So um, in the Old Testament, because it says he became a curse. So I already told you all of that curse in the beginning. But here it says he became a curse. And what this means is it's in a legal sense. In the same way that you might, it might be that person's guilty legally, this is the sentencing, the condemnation for, for their guilt, and then he becomes the person that's now going to receive the condemnation. He's going to receive the, 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 the judgment upon him. And that's what it means by he became the curse for us. It says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Now, first thing in your mind is the cross, right? And there's some accuracy there, but only the Romans did crosses. They came up with crucifixion, but they were hanging people on poles before that. And the way that it would work is, is um, they would uh, uh, take them, hang them up, and you could be passing by them for days until they died on that pole, and it was a sign of the shame of being sentenced and dying there. That is a murderer. There they are. They're hanging right there, and they could go by and cast aspersions, say what they want to, but there was shame in that, open public display of their guilt and the judgment upon them. Now, the Jews, in the, if, you, if we just had the Easter and the resurrection, you know, they wanted to get Christ's body down because the Jews did not want to leave bodies up overnight. They wanted to bring it down and prepare the body for burial. So this idea of cursed are those who hang on a tree is this long amount of time that they were on the pole that brought shame to them. Now, Jesus hung on that tree. He took this on. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, in Leviticus, it talks about the scapegoat. Now, do you know this term? You know what a scapegoat is? A scapegoat is, some, is somebody who is the one that's getting blamed for something, you know. And one of the best illustrations of this, I've used, talked about this before, is in the movie The Nativity. 
In the very beginning of that movie, you have King Herod, and Herod comes, and he, he, there's a cow there, and they're doing a ceremony, and there's priests, and he, he touches the cow. And the prayer that he says is, pass all of my sin, the guilt, the condemnation for those, those breaking of the rules are going to go from me to this cow, and then what happens to the cow? They slaughter it. Yeah, you were in the first service, so you know the answer. These guys are really spiritual. They're like two-service people right here. Uh, but uh, they slaughter it. The cow receives the punishment for Herod's sins, and he pays the price. And this is the idea of a sacrificial atonement. Something's being paid, but not by the one who's really guilty. It passed over to someone else. And this term scapegoat is given to that. And this is Christ on the cross. He is the scapegoat. He is the, the sacrificial atoning person who is taking it what we deserve. Now, I want you to think about this because sometimes the pushback I get is, well, why can't God just forgive why does there have to be this brutality like that? I mean, you know, as a dad, sometimes one of my kids does something wrong, I could throw the hammer down. Or sometimes you're, I'm going to be forgiving and gracious in that and give them another chance. You know, I see some sincerity in them, you know, so there's no grounding. There's no whatever, right? But God cannot do that. And the reason he can't do that is because of his attribute, holiness. All of God's attributes work together. And he is holy. And when we commit sins, they don't just float up into the air and disappear and become nothing. It's, it's like somebody, if somebody came and murdered one of my children, and then they went to court, I want justice I want justice, and there's a wrath in me that wants to go, and I want to deal with them personally. I'm going to let the law deal with them. And then the trial happens, and then they get convicted. Maybe it's life in prison. Maybe, depending where you are, right, maybe it's the death penalty. But whatever happens, there's still in me. Do you think I'd be totally satisfied? Because there's a hole that is left in me, a loss that is there, that no matter what happens to the criminal, I'm still going to feel it. It doesn't just go up in the air and disappear, it's going to remain on me. And there's probably a measure of wrath that always is just underneath me that I've got to deal with, right? And now you've got to think about the holy character of God. Every sin that we've committed in our lives is against that holy character. And it can't just float away and disappear into nothingness. He has to deal with it. If he doesn't, he is not just. Do you see that? It would be like, well, just let, I'm not going to deal with the murderer even though he killed my son. And I would say, that's not just. There's not justice in that. There should be justice. And because of his holy character, he has to deal with the sin that has violated that holy character. And how does he do that? And that's why I use these words, justice is satisfied and wrath is exhausted. Where? On his son. When he went to that cross, what did I say was 
cursed in the very beginning. In the very beginning, I said it's separation from God. And Christ on that cross, you know, God, God turned. And he, he experienced what we should experience. He's the scapegoat there. But the, Paul uses this term, propitiation. It's a theological term. And what it means is God is satisfied with what Christ did on the cross. There is nothing more that needs to be done. And, I, and that's hard for me to fathom. Because if someone murdered one of my sons, I already told you, I would, I, no matter what it was, there'd be a hole in me. I'd want to do more. I'd probably think, let's go after the family, right? And then I probably shouldn't be saying this publicly, you know. <laughs> but that's how I would feel. I would have to deal with that. But the, the Bible assures us in this. Because think about the value of the loss on that cross. The most valuable human that ever lived, the Son of God. That's what was paid. And God put His wrath upon His Son. And the Bible says He was satisfied. His wrath is exhausted. I do not need to fear condemnation because Jesus substituted for me. I can trust that justice has been met because Jesus substituted for me. Now, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul wrote, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, the last point here is the result then of the ransom. The result, there's two things that he lists here. He says, so that, so he, he became a curse for us. And then it says, so that, this is the reason why he became a curse. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So two things that happened there. First of all, a blessing, and he emphasizes the Gentiles. When he hung on the cross, it wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the Gentiles as well. It was for all those who might receive him in faith. No matter the culture, no matter the race, that's a blessing. And then secondly, we talked about this a couple Sundays ago, the receiving of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit to come and live and dwell within us. Those two things happen because Jesus, it's like we're purchased now we belong to God. Well, now that you belong to me, I'm giving you my spirit. And my spirit can come and dwell within you. So, we get to the end here, and I want to ask you a question. Because I said to you, there's two. Two kinds of people. Two kinds of people in the room. You live by faith, or you live by works, right? We don't want to mix it, but I'm going to ask you, who are you? Do you live by faith? Or do you live by works? You might be surprised that there are ways in which you're living by works. Now, Tim Keller phrased it this way. He said, what if I lost it would make me feel as if I had no life left? Because what he's driving at, there's something in your life that you hold on to greater than God. There's something that displaces him for love and adoration. You put your hope in other things. 
because you put your hope in it, and then when it doesn't happen, ah, your life is now on fire. What if, what is it in your life, if you lost it, you would say, I just, I don't have a reason now. I had a woman once, we met, we counseled, we prayed for them. She had spent a decade married and wanted children so bad, and she was not able to have children. And she said to me, Pastor, I, if I don't have children, I, don't, I feel like I, I, I don't have value and I don't understand why God won't give me children. I've been praying for 10 years for, for a child, and he won't give one to me. And that's what I'm talking about when Tim Keller says, what is it? If there's something that you don't get, or it, it becomes taken away, or it's destroyed, it's lost, it's broken, and suddenly your life doesn't have meaning. See, that's where you live by faith for eternity, but you're walking right now on this earth, and there's a way in which you're living by works. Because if you are living by faith, there is nothing on this planet that could displace God. Your ultimate hope is in, in Him. You are adopted into His family. You're a child of the King of the universe. You have an inheritance in heaven that can't be touched by anything on this earth. It cannot rust. It can't be stolen. Why would you lose hope then? Why would you feel like you have lost whatever it is here because who you are in God shadows over that. It's bigger than that. Keller went on to say, ultimate identity then might be in something else. You have an identity in something else that, you, that is greater than child of the king of the universe, saved by grace. And if you're holding on to that, well, how do you know? How do I know, Pastor? How do I know i got an identity that's competing with my, my identity as a child of God? Here's how you know. I stole it from Tim Keller. I'm going to read it. Salvation by works leads to profound anxiety and insecurity. It makes you oversensitive to criticism. It makes you envious. It makes you intimidated. Just think about those words. I think people in this room, those words apply to us in some level, right? Anxiety? Are you someone in here that wrestles with anxiety? Insecurity? Do you, uh, are you intimidated by people? Sometimes you feel inferior. Sometimes you feel superior. Are you a person that can't take criticism, you're oversensitive to that, these are triggers. These are triggers that should be telling you, I think I've got an identity over here that's competing with God, and I'm finding value in it. And honestly, that is what Paul is driving at. You are living by works. You're doing something. You're working something here on this earth that is your ultimate identity, and it's displacing God. But the, the best part of the story, right, is that Christ did the work for us. And He, although we are cursed, there's a provision. You know, that Jamaican man who said, I'm cursed, I can't leave my house. How do you know you're cursed? Every time I open the door, there's an egg, it's a sign of the curse. And I remember my coach interacting with him because I didn't tell you this, but we were playing games in this part of Jamaica that was in utter poverty 
utter poverty. The whole hundreds of houses in the neighborhood, all of them tin shacks, leaning like they're going to fall over. Poor. Kids run around, barely any clothes on, no shoes. Poverty. And I remember my coach saying, you're a child of God. No, no, no witchcraft, witch doctor, no curse has power over your God. And it seems to me like your God has actually found a way to provide for you. Because every day you wake up, you open that door, there's breakfast right there. <laughs> and do you know what that guy started doing? He started opening that door and eating that egg. And he had food in a place that had poverty. You see how in the midst of the curse, there's a provision. And God does that with us. He becomes the curse to provide a way back to Him if we put our faith in the work that He did on the cross for us and nothing else in this life should trump that. Thank you, Lord, for Galatians, for this letter, this great letter that Paul wrote. There's so much about it that applies to us today. And I pray that we're challenged, that we would be thinking that there's a measure of anxiety, there's a measure of intimidation, there's a measure of insecurity. I think about that woman that you sent that we talked to who, who struggled with an identity as a mother being the most important thing to her, and yet you worked in her life. She put a greater faith in you, and in time you gave her children. She has children now, but before that, Lord, she, she found herself grounded in you, her, her number one identity being in Christ, a child of the King of the universe, an inheritance waiting for her. And that's true of all of us, and it's, it's a great illustration for us, a great story to motivate us if we struggle with insecurity, if we struggle with any of these words that I brought up, that we have an identity that's competing with you. So help us to recognize the triggers, Lord, that teach us that we are displacing you that we should have a grounding in security and being a child of God, knowing that what Christ did on the cross, you are satisfied with it. And there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. And we rejoice in that. We lift this up in your son's wonderful name. Amen. Let's stand and let's finish as we worship together.